going through the book of Acts right now as a church family, looking at the explosive growth of the church and how God's spirit uses God's people to continue. Oh, here's where, good news. He hasn't called us to start anything, folks. Not start any, we're not trying to get something going. God's spirit uses God's people to continue what Jesus started when he was here on this earth. And what we're gonna see today, oh, this is so encouraging. I hope it will encourage so many of you. What you'll see today is that God's spirit doesn't have to go looking for someone who already is leaning towards the gospel and would already make a great candidate for Christianity. They're already just so doggone nice. Just add Jesus. They would just make the best Christian, right? We can be guilty of that. We have certain categories of, oh, not that person, never in a million years, but them. Oh, you're gonna see today, God's spirit does not have to go looking for people who are already leaning towards the gospel and look like they would make great candidates. God in his sovereignty and love and mercy and power can choose to change and use anybody. Even some of the most unlikely candidates for his glory. One of those most unlikely candidates, folks, was Saul, that God radically saved and then he used him to promote the gospel and take the gospel into some of the most important cities in his day and to put Paul in front of some of the most important people in his day to talk to them about the gospel and Jesus. Now stay with me. That would be like God saving Dr. Richard Dawkins today. Do you know that name? It'd be like God saving Dr. Richard Dawkins today. And not just saving him. This is a man who has attacked Christianity and creationism, has written untold numbers of books, speaks, blogs. He hates Christianity. He hates creationism. It'd be like God saving Dr. Richard Dawkins and then using Richard Dawkins to promote and defend Christianity with everyone saying, isn't this Dr. Richard Dawkins that wrote The God Delusion and has been mocking and attacking Christians for decades now? Yeah, it is. That's what God can do. Go to Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine and you follow along. As I begin reading in verse one. Acts chapter nine, verse one. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Look at me. Here's what just happened. Paul hates Christianity so much, and he is so committed to stamping it out, he is taking his campaign of hate on the road now. I mean, we read those things and we think, oh, okay. Damascus is 150 miles north of Jerusalem in another country called Syria. And you didn't just jump on an airplane. It took a while to travel 150 miles. And Paul's like, I've done all I can in Jerusalem to stop this. I'm so committed. I know Christians have scattered now because of the persecution I brought here. I'm going after them there. This is what I live for now to stop this. Verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground. 
and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am, say it. Oh, guess what? He's alive. Oh, yes, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad was a big stick they'd use to poke an ox and keep him moving and keep him from trashing the wagon. He said, I'm just going to kick this wagon until it breaks apart. No, you're not because there's a goad back there and it hurts. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that would be you, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, Ananias does what we would all do. It's like, God, I know you're God. But just in case you missed it, you've been busy in Bangladesh somewhere. Just in case you missed it, can I just say something? This is a horrible man. Do you know that? And he's persecuting Christians and he's come here to do the same. Just want you to know that. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is is a chosen vessel of, say it, say it again, mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has he, he has come here for the same purpose that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. I could go home. That is so encouraging, folks. But I prepared a sermon, so we won't. 
And you drug out, so we won't. So what could we learn? What might we get from this passage that would encourage us today in America? Number one, here's what I want you to see. Number one, the most hateful opponents are sometimes the most fearful folks. Look at how verse one describes Paul. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Luke says that Paul was not just threatening Christians. He was breathing threats and murder. It's as if this new hate and cause is the very air he breathes. It's not just what he's doing, it's who he's become. I live for this. This is everything now. I will stop this. Why? Well, let me help you. This new message of the gospel threatens to dismantle the very core of who he is as a Pharisee and would turn all of his religious achievements for which he's worked so hard and is so proud of into a pile of rubbish. So here's what I want you to understand sometimes when we get such hate and you wonder why don't they hate other religions like this? Let me help you. It shows people are actually listening. We should be encouraged that they recognize there's a difference. The gospel is not just something you add to the side of your life and everything stays largely the same. It's just plus Jesus. When people understand it right, they recognize this message changes everything. It's not a list of things I now agree to. It is a brand new relationship with Jesus Christ who is Lord Jesus and I now am in a relationship with him, accountable to him, and I live for him. Amen. That's a big deal. Amen. Trust me. This is why people feel so threatened by the gospel in Christianity, folks. Because this message was a threat to his very identity and world view. And when people feel threatened on that level, they will lash out. They will lash out when they feel threatened on that level. Christopher Hitchens, name you might know, he's dead now, he died of esophagus cancer, but oh my goodness, he was a rising star in the world of atheism and outspoken people that are articulate and witty and sarcastic. He wrote, God is not great. And he spoke relentlessly and he debated people relentlessly. Guess what? He had a brother, Peter Hitchens. And at the same time, while Christopher was becoming a rising star on the platform of atheism, attacking Christianity, Peter, who was also no dummy, had his PhD and was a professor at a leading university, came to faith in Christ. Imagine the conversations he must have been having with his brother. And he admits in his book, Rage Against God, that he began to drive way out from the big city and go into small village churches and just slip in the back because he didn't want anyone else at the university to know that he was attending church or even interested in Christianity. He came to faith in Christ despite who his brother was, despite who he was at a university. And he looks back on his atheism and he says this, which is very helpful. He makes this comment about some of the hateful rhetoric and venom, it seems like, that gets spewed at Christians by unbelievers. Let me help you. Listen to what he says, because he was there, and then God saved him. 
He says, quote, I too have been angry with opponents who required me to re-examine opinions that I had embraced more through passion than through reason. Folks, they love to say, I believe what I believe because I'm so smart. I think you don't, you're stupid. It's not true. They believe what they believe through passion far more than reason, which is why you can argue and show them evidence and show credibility and they still say, whatever. He says, I know what it was like to be forced to re-examine my opinions that I embraced more through passion than reason. I too have felt the unsettling lurch beneath my feet as the solid ground of my belief shifted. What would follow is a long self-deceiving attempt to ignore or belittle truths that would upset a position in which I had long been comfortable. And I suspect that the stinging, hot stinging techniques of their argument, the occasional profanity, and the persistent impatience and scorn are as useful to them as they once were to me in fending off doubt. Now, if you don't understand what he just said, let me help you. Those who are most hateful are not always most confident in what they believe and they have to make up for it with hateful rhetoric and slurs. They take it personal. They scream. They, and so stay with me, folks. That's why as Christians, we cannot respond in kind. I don't care what they say to you. I don't, my heart breaks when I see Christians online saying, I hope you go to hell. On my word, we what you show when you start attacking and you go hateful and you start spewing, you show you lack confidence in what you believe. Because when you're confident in it, you can be quiet and gracious. And here's the other thing. When you're confident in it and you don't have religion, but you have a relationship with Jesus, he makes you more like him. Folks, read the Gospels. Jesus got angry and talked harshly to self-righteous Pharisees and religious people. He didn't talk that way to rank unbelievers who were lost. Don't respond in kind. They're doing that because they lack confidence. We don't lack confidence. If you do, study up some more and shut your mouth until you're more confident. If you can't say it sweetly and lovingly, let someone else do it. Don't represent us, please. So many times I just think, oh my goodness, they don't represent what I think or how I would do that. Not hateful, not spewing, not venomous, because we're confident and we're following Jesus and he's making us more like him. You can even see this played out on a larger scale in our culture, folks, by the way the culture demotes and marginalizes Christianity as not even worthy of consideration. It's so stupid, you shouldn't even consider that. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Some years ago, there was a full-page ad in the New York Times taken out by Columbia University. That's a university in New York City. And it speaks volumes about where we are in our culture. It was an ad for Columbia University offering seven graduate degrees leading to a Master of Arts in Liberal Studies. And the seven areas were laid out in bold print across the top of the page. It said, American studies, ancient studies, East Asian studies, Islamic studies, Jewish studies, medieval studies, and South Asian studies. 
I hope the question is obvious. What about Christian studies? Why isn't there a degree being offered in Christian studies? When Richard John Newhouse, who was living in New York City at the time, saw the ad, he wrote this editorial explaining what he thinks is going on. He said, quote, the larger reason has to do with the secular ethos of the modern university. Nervousness is caused by the awareness that there are an awful lot of people who really believe in Christianity. Even in religious studies departments, faculty members who are Hindus, Buddhists, believers in mystical crystals can quite openly profess their faith. Muslims and usually Jews can too. Nobody raises a question about their, quote, proselytizing. Not so with Christians. The fear is that Christianity might be taken altogether too seriously. The absence of Christian studies in the Columbia University program, as it turns out, is not an insult to Christianity. Those of other faiths, however, might have reason to be offended. Do you understand what he's saying? Christianity is so often not included because it is so convincing. They can't take the risk of presenting it because someone might actually believe it. Folks, it's a backhanded compliment that it just won't, it doesn't get equal airtime, it doesn't get equal, but we don't need it. God is going to do what God is going to do. And the fact that they treat it totally different because they know it's like no other religion. Our beliefs are rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you dig into it, the historicity and credibility of that is quite amazing. Our beliefs are rooted in the credibility of the scriptures with manuscripts of 1,500 found in different places in the world, unlike any other body, anybody else's holy book, unlike the Quran, unlike the Book of Mormon, where you can't find the coins they talk about, and you can't dig up the cities, and you don't find the people groups, and there's no evidence that Jesus visited America. Yikes. So different. There's a credibility and there's a substance to Christianity that causes them to say, we can't risk letting people examine it the way you would anything else because they just might believe it. We must marginalize it and mock it. So you might be sitting there saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do if we don't get equal airtime in the marketplace? If that's you, Christian, settle down. And then lay your little head down and sleep good. Because what we're going to do is what God has been doing from the very beginning. God doesn't need equal airtime. God doesn't need to be treated equally in the marketplace to keep right on changing lives and saving people and building his church and expanding his kingdom and bursting into darkness with light. Our God will do what he purposed to do. We just get to be a part of it. And that's what Acts chapter nine is all about. It's one example of this, folks. So that's my second point. God can save suddenly and without permission. Oh, did you know that? That's one of the things that stands out in this chapter. You see, God saved Paul suddenly despite his animosity. I mean, it doesn't say, right? And Saul, beginning to question how hateful he was, and Saul, having been handed a good Christian book that proved Jesus, Saul still 
breathing threats and murder. That's where he was when God saved him. Oh my goodness, God can save people suddenly despite their animosity. Look at verse three. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and there was a gradual dawning of light like the new. What's it say? Say that word again. Say it again. Suddenly, more like thunder, lightning, no warning, no lead up. Boom, suddenly a light shone. Then he fell to the ground. Look at me. Jesus showed up and he went down. With no prior warning, no notification. Jesus showed up and he went down. Dr. Luke uses that word suddenly, folks, because I hope you realize that's exactly how God can save some people and does choose to save. I know there's gradual with many, many, many lives, but take heart. Listen to me. I hope you realize God can save suddenly just as easily as he can save gradually. We tend to think, but there has to be something that was already going on. Oh, we need to see movement. I need to see some encouraging signs. I need to see them getting nicer and asking questions. And they took the book that I was writing. Mamas especially. Mamas. Take heart with your rebel. They don't have to be interested in reading a book or meeting with that person you tried to put them together with or anything. God can knock them to the ground in their dorm, on their job, on the beach, wherever, and save them. Because he's God. He's God, mamas and daddies. But I know mamas struggle more. And I'm telling you that because we've lived through it and are living through it. I don't have some happy little thing, all my kids love Jesus. No, they still don't. But I have hope. I have great hope, not in what I see happening in their lives, but who I know, his character, his promises, and his history of saving people. That's where my hope is tied. You see, Paul's conversion is so sudden, so shocking, and such a 180 that there are actually people who have tried to build a case for showing there had to be something else, some things already going on in his life. Nobody does this. This never happens, but you cannot prove it from scripture. In fact, this is interesting. Later, when Paul talks about his own conversion, He doesn't say, well, here's what no one realized. I was already starting to question this. I was already feeling bad about watching Stephen die. You know, women and children, how could I do this? You know, there's gotta be some good in every person and the goodness inside me just began to swell up and I was like, no, no. Paul never links his conversion to any preparatory work that what God was doing to soften him and break up hard ground. And and, And you don't have to guess what he thinks. In the book of Galatians and 1 Timothy, when he talks about his conversion, he does not mention any prior work or preparatory work. In fact, to the contrary, Paul says in Galatians 1 that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries and was very exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers. You know what that means? Paul was a rising star in the academic field of what he already believed. And he was becoming more and more entrenched in it. And he was receiving more and more notoriety for it. He was the poster child for what he already believed. He was not softening. He was not backing off on it. And so when Paul describes his conversion, how would he describe it? 
Well, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he uses five life-altering words that we so often tend to forget. You ready? But when it pleased God. When it pleased God to call me through his grace and reveal his son in me. That's how Paul got saved. Our God doesn't have to go looking for people who are already low-hanging fruit. You know, we tend to think, oh, they're so ripe right now. Oh, they're open. You would say, they're open. They're open. A book, coffee, something. Invite them now. They're so open. And, And there's a place for some of that. I just want you to be encouraged when they don't look open. In fact, they look more hateful than ever, more confident than ever. They're getting louder. They're getting harsher. They're getting, I don't care. Our God can save people suddenly and without their permission. Paul doesn't say, I actually was depressed. He hadn't just been through a divorce. He was not in a financial crisis. And he was not struggling with identity or daddy issues. There was nothing like, oh, here's why suddenly he was open. He was advancing in what he believed. He was as zealous as ever. He was the poster child. But... When it pleased who? Say it again. To call me through his grace and reveal his son in me. That's how Paul got saved. You say, okay, great. But that's Acts 9, that's Saul. Does God do that anymore? That's what he used to do. He doesn't do it that way anymore. Oh, yes, he does. It's the same thing that God did when he saved Rosaria Butterfield, who was a tenured professor at Syracuse University who was living with his, her lesbian lover. Oh, listen to what she says was going on in her life when God came crashing into her life. She says, at age of 36, I was one of the few tenured women at a large research university, a rising administrator and a community activist. I had become one of the, quote, tenured radicals. By all standards, I had made it. That same year, Christ claimed me for his own. That's what our God can do. It's not like, oh, oh, she's very open. Oh, 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 oh. She was a rising star in what she believed. She was an activist that was leading the student groups to believe what she believed and to live the way she lived. That same year, we would have looked and said, oh, there's no hope. Do not base your hope on what you see. Base your hope on who God is and how merciful he is. He's a seeking, saving God. He's a seeking, saving God. He's a seeking, saving, merciful God. Praise God. He can do that with whomever he chooses and whenever he chooses. Listen to me. Rosaria Butterfield was not looking for God, but God mercifully was looking for her. That's the kind of God we have, and that's why Christianity is so different. Every other religion tells you how to get to God. Christianity has God coming after us, God coming to us, God coming down to us. That's what the incarnation is all about. God took on flesh and came into this world 
to seek and to save, Jesus said, that which was lost. God comes to us. That's why Christianity is so different. He moves towards us while we are running from him. And so here's what this means for some of you sitting here today. Oh my goodness. Some of you are praying for a loved one, a son, a daughter, a spouse, a parent, a good friend that still shows no signs of turning to Christ. You don't see any evidence of shifting, softening, reconsidering any of what they say they believe. In fact, what you see is them going harder after what they've been going after and moving further away from Christianity. Take heart. We have a God who interrupts and intervenes at any time he pleases. They don't have to be moving towards him because he's not, look, get this. We tend to talk this way. I hope this doesn't freak some of you out. He's not looking for seekers. He's looking for sinners. We say, oh, but they're not seeking him. That's okay. Let me tell you how many people are seeking him. Zero. Zero. I know what you see is, oh, but let me trust you. Those people that look like, oh, they're more interested now. They started going, guess who worked first? God. Because the one that is saved suddenly or the one that is saved gradually still had a dead, stone-cold heart, blind, deaf to the, the beauty of the gospel, and God had to begin to work first for them to begin to move in that direction. He can do it gradually, he can do it suddenly, but it's what he is doing. So take heart, have hope. Romans chapter three, verse 10 to 12, helps us with this whole seeker thing. But I need to share the gospel with a seeker. I don't want to waste my time with a stone-cold, hard, dead pagan. Shut up. Romans 3, 10 to 12. There is none righteous. Oh, but my grandmother never cussed. No, not one. Not her. Not even her, sweet little granny. Nope. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God, they have all turned aside. See the mistake we make is the people who turn aside in very scary, ugly kind of ways with drugs or immorality or hate. We think, oh, they're not seeking it. Folks, those super nice people, they've turned away in their own way. Sometimes they're harder to save because they're so wrapped up in who they are and how much better they are than anybody else and what they haven't done It doesn't matter who the person is, what their life is looking like. Nobody seeks God until God in his mercy works in them. So there's hope. There's hope. Why does nobody seek God? Folks, because every human being by nature wants to be autonomous and does not want to be interfered with. That's the way C.S. Lewis talked about it. I love it. The Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis, said in his own biography this. Now, he was a staunch professor of Greek mythology, literature at Oxford. Again, not ripe for the picking. Brilliant. Not interested in Jesus. Not interested in becoming a Christian. He says this, quote, I had always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. I had wanted to call my soul my own. 
Well, here's some really good news. Jesus interferes with people who want to be left alone. Praise God, he's that loving. He's that merciful. And that's what our chapter shows, that he can... He can turn the lives of some of the hardest people upside down and he can do it whenever and wherever he chooses, regardless of how hard they're running away from him or how loudly they're screaming at you. Do not base it on what they're saying. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. Some of you know my own son Harrison. I've got five kids. I had multiple kids that were still not saved. Oh, trust me, I've done what every parent's done. I've given books, I've drawn diagrams. I thought, who can talk to them? Who do they know, who do they respect? Who already lived this horrible way and now they're saying, go talk to them. Until I exhausted myself, which usually needs to happen to all parents. And then, you know what I did? I started praying. God, get him. (laughs) Be merciful, please, no wheelchair, not paralysis, but get him. For your glory, choose them. Make him your own divine object of mercy. For your glory, for your namesake, save him. Every day, every day with my hands lifted. Every day. And my son would tell you while he was the closest of having all that he wanted, the nice car, the great job, the, 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 the. All of a sudden he was miserable. How does that happen? God. All of a sudden he said, Dad, I think I need God in my life. I said, I do too. We're on the same page now. He said, Dad, I've started reading the Gospel of Mark. And it wasn't me saying, take a Gospel New Testament, please, son, read it for your daddy. (laughs) If not, Dad, read it for Mama. You're breaking her heart. You're breaking her. Do you see what you're doing to your mama? Cry, honey. It's like, we'd already done that. I'd already said, I can't believe you're doing this to your mother. They don't care. They're lost. Lights out. But God, just like with Paul, can suddenly speak light into that dead heart and knock them to the ground without you. But you can pray. Here's how we talk about it sometimes. Well, all I can do is pray now. Oh, bummer. Has it come to that? It's like... (laughs) What a privilege. I can go to the God of the universe who has all power and wisdom and sovereignty and I can go day and night. I don't have to line up. I don't have to wait in line. It's not once a week. I can pray to the God of heavens who knows where he is, where she is, what they're thinking, what's going on. Even if they won't tell me, God knows, God cares, and God can save. Oh, I hope that encourages some of you here today. You got anybody like that in your life right now that's running from him and maybe even screaming at you? Take heart. Take heart. God can save suddenly just as easily as gradually. But I want you to notice something else about this passage that stands out. Not only did God save Paul suddenly, he saved him authoritatively and without permission. Look what I'm talking about in verse four and five. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus. Now I want you to notice something about this encounter with Jesus that is so different than the way we talk today so many times. Jesus didn't speak in his sweetest shepherd voice. Saul, honestly, please think about kneeling down. I know, I know. Look at where your life is headed. This is not good. 
think about kneeling down. And please, you gotta ask me into your heart. You gotta ask. I can't come in unless you ask. Please ask. I'm begging you. I'm knocking at your heart's door. This is poor Jesus who died for you. Open the door, please. In fact, here's a little sinner's prayer. All you gotta do is repeat it after me. Dear God, dear God, I know I'm, it's that easy. Ready? Do you see any of that? Say it louder. Acts chapter nine doesn't talk like that. Look at verse six. Jesus, arise. He's on the ground. Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. Jesus is saying, I set this meeting up. I don't remember checking with you. Clear your calendar. Does this work for you? You're on your way to Damascus. Maybe we could have a chat. I set this meeting up, and we will not be talking about and deciding together what happens next. I'm telling you what happens next. See, I grew up in the church, and I always heard this presented, that poor Jesus is out there. There was even sad pictures on the Sunday school wall of this anemic-looking feminine Jesus And I'm supposed to feel so sorry for him that I finally say, all right, save me. You just look so sad. (laughs) Folks, that is not what the Bible teaches. There was even a man that said, Jesus is a gentleman. He never enters where he's not invited. Oh, praise God, that's not true. Or hell would be full of a lot more people. Oh my goodness, Jesus is not sad. Jesus, not, he didn't knock on Paul's heart door. He knocked Paul to the ground and said, This is who I am. I claim you for my own. I claim you for my own. That's the testimony of C.S. Lewis, who wasn't looking for Jesus, didn't want to become a Christian, was not softening. In fact, he describes his conversion. He titles his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And he says this about his conversion. Listen, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen. Magdalen was the specific college on the campus of Oxford where he taught. You must picture me in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. In the Trinity term of 1929, I knelt and prayed, perhaps the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. You understand what he's saying? Because it's what the Bible teaches. If God did not compel us to come, we would not come. He loves us enough. Jesus is looking to set some people free who don't even want it, who are not asking for it, but he's that good. He died for us, what? While we were becoming nicer. While we were yet sinners, enemies, running from him. That's when Christ died for us. And now he's seeking 
And he's come to save not those who are seeking him, but those who are lost. Some of your loved ones are so lost. Guess what? That makes them a perfect candidate for Jesus. That's who he's looking for. Very lost people. Because he loves to put on display what his grace and mercy and power can do. Rosario Butterfield, same way. Talks about this intentional, intrusive way that God saved her. And she titles her book, A Most Unlikely, The Secret Thoughts of a Most Unlikely Convert. Listen to what she says. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? Wow. Truth be told, it felt a little like both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle called conversion does not work for me. I didn't read, she was a literature professor also. I didn't read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes, examine my life, and then cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. I didn't seek the Lord. Instead, I ran like the wind when I suspected someone would start peddling the gospel to me. This word conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter, impact. Rosario, Rosaria, sorry, came face to face with the living God just like Saul did. And the repercussions, and he came to her. She wasn't seeking him. He came to Saul. Saul wasn't seeking him. But when you come face to face with the living God, the impact of that, oh, we're not talking about religion. Oh, please live differently. Jesus, when you come face to face with the living God, the repercussions of the impact of that reverberate out into every area of your life and you are changed forever. Ever, that's the power of the gospel. God can save suddenly. God can save without permission. But here's where it gets really exciting. Then he loves to put on display using those same people who at once one time had tried to destroy it. Number three, God can use those same people to promote and defend what they tried to destroy. Look at verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. That's what he had hated before. Oh, but maybe he's not good at it because he's a new Christian. Uh, Look at verse 22. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in proving Proving, it's a Greek word that means to deduce and reason and pull facts together in a way that someone has to say, oh, wow, look at that. Proving that Jesus is the Christ. Paul went on to become one of the most articulate defenders and promoters of what he had tried to destroy. He wrote 12 books of the New Testament. He planted dozens of churches around the world. C.S. Lewis went on to write, 30 Christian books, at least. One of them, the series Chronicles of Narnia, that sold millions, millions, millions. And he wrote Mere Christianity, which many would consider one of the most influential books of our century, ranking it up there next to Augustine's Confession. And here's what I love, because I was doing a little research about it. I love it. I've read it three times. Even though it was written in 1959, Mere Christianity, you know what's happening today? It is one of the most influential books today in China. 
that is rocking China for Jesus. The Chinese translation of mere Christianity is a huge reason Chinese are coming to Christ. And it all started with one little Oxford scholar who had no desire for Jesus, who above all things wanted to be not interfered with. And God saved him and chose to use him for his glory. So what changed Saul into Paul, who would then be willing to suffer and even die for the very thing he had tried to destroy? Please don't make a mistake. Paul did not get religion. Sometimes you hear that. Oh, he got religion. He's quit cussing. She's got religion now. She's trying not to drink so much. (laughs) Folks, Paul already had religion. Paul had religion. That is not what changed Paul, and he wants to make sure you know it. We don't have time, but you can see it in Philippians chapter three, where Paul says, oh, you wanna talk religion? I had all that, I could win every day. I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous. He lists all his achievements, and here's what's interesting. He says, all of that is confidence in the flesh. Religion is confident. Now, I know you're not a Hebrew of Hebrews, probably, tribe of Benjamin, but you can be guilty of the same thing. I was born in this kind of family. I was raised in church. Oh, I was sprinkled. Oh, I was baptized. Oh, I'm a church member. I walked an aisle. I shook a hand. I filled out a card. I threw a stick in the fire at youth camp. I don't care. That can all just be confidence in the flesh. I'm asking you today, what do you have? What rocked Paul's world was he moved from religion to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, all of that is rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, and the righteousness that now I have from God by faith. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't merit it. By faith. Religion or relationship? And you might be here saying, but Brad, you don't know who I am, what I've done, where I've been. There's no hope for me. God would never forgive me. Christ could never accept me and make me one of his own. Here's what I think is interesting. In 1 Timothy chapter one, Paul actually says, God saved me so that I would be an example or a pattern for all future people who think they're too far, too gone. If he could save me. He wanted to put on display his patience. Was God patient with Paul? While Paul ranted and raved, God didn't snuff him out. You may have a loved one doing horrible things. God is patient and long-suffering, and he wants you to know he was with Paul. He will be with you. You're not too far gone. You're not in a category that's hopeless. Come, and don't say, well, I need to get my act together. No, you'll never get it together until you have Jesus in your life. He'll give you a new power. Come today, come as you are, don't delay. Faith in Christ, faith in Christ. And if you're here and you're a Christian, take heart. If you've been guilty of saying, oh, that's too far gone, there's no hope, they're done. Oh, start praying again. Start praying again to the merciful God who can save suddenly and with out permission. 
Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your mercy and thank you for your son. We could never save ourselves. We would all be eternally lost without hope. Thank you for being a seeking, saving God. We love you. We want to live for you. And we want you to get all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.